This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Christopher Crow, president of the Catalyst Health Network. What can I say about Dr. Crow? He's a healthcare innovator, nationally recognized for the work he's done with Catalyst. He's an entrepreneur. He's an award-winning primary care physician who spent the last 20-plus years focused on helping communities thrive through improving the delivery of healthcare. He's also a value creator. He's aligned a network of more than a thousand primary care doctors. They're responsible for about a million lives across North Texas with Catalyst. Today, they've had savings upwards of $100 million for the communities that they serve, and they're one of five URAC clinically integrated networks in the nation. He's also a market leader, award-winning in the work that he's done with Catalyst. He's been recognized as the Healthcare Innovator of the Year by DCEO Magazine. He was given the TAFP Presidential Award of Merit, and he's one of Dallas's 500 most powerful leaders. Truly, Daniel, someone that is winning this race to value. Eric, you've said it all. You're right. What an amazing leader, and it's a fantastic conversation that we had today. I truly enjoyed talking to Dr. Crow. I know our listeners are going to enjoy it too. So with that, let's turn it over to our conversation with Dr. Crow. Dr. Christopher Crow, welcome to the Race to Value. Hey, it's great to be here with you guys. Well, Christopher, I've been following your work for quite a while, and I must say, you are a true healthcare innovator. And getting to know you over the last few years, I've noticed that you're more of a strategic systems thinker, and you like to build systems of care that can impact hundreds of thousands of people. And even though you started in, in the exam room as a primary care physician, focusing on your 25 patients in a given day, the innovative work that you're doing now and leading Catalyst Health Network, it's really all about delivering a system of care that can help thousands of physicians take care of their 25 patients. And at Catalyst, I mean, you've really figured out how to build a high-performing network that can help communities thrive. So as I think about your work as an innovator, I can't help but make this comparison to Thomas Edison. 
So how you've connected Catalyst to the communities it serves through an activated independent physician network, it's not unlike what Edison did when he created the electric light bulb and wrapped an entire industry around it. I mean, the light bulb is often thought of as his signature invention, but Edison understood the bulb was a little more than a parlor trick without a system of electrical power generation and transmission to truly make it successful. And he created that too. So what made Edison such a genius was his ability to conceive of a fully developed marketplace, not just a simply a discrete device. So your level of innovation of Catalyst really reminded me of that. And you seem to be adept at using design thinking at Catalyst, and you can imbue a full spectrum of innovation activities with a human-centered design ethos. So Christopher, as we start our conversation today, I, I wanted to ask you if you could just briefly share with our listeners your journey as a healthcare innovator from the time you founded Village Health Partners, which was the first NCQA level three medical home in Texas, to where you are now with Catalyst Health Network, which is a high-performing CIN of a thousand plus primary care providers that manages over a million lives in Texas. And then I really want to know more about the center of your purpose to help communities thrive by building a system of care that's collaborative and grounded in relationships. How are you able to create a relationship-centered care model of independent physicians that's scalable? Can you provide some insights maybe to our listeners on how you're able to design a system that can provide intimacy at scale with a hyper-personalized service model and then in the process save more than $75 million for the communities to which you serve? Wow, Eric, appreciate the compliments. I've certainly never been compared to Thomas Edison, but as you did that, where I do resonate with him is his ideas of trying and trying and trying and trying 100 times over. We call those value attempts. We are always trying to be innovative and, and constantly putting value attempts into the world to create a better system. And, and the way we know to do that is, is trial and error around a common purpose. And so to your question of how did we get from here to there, starting at, at Village Health Partners when I was a family physician of the first level three NCQA patient-centered medical home kind of in the 2007, we were the first in the whole middle part of the United States. We had probably 12-ish maybe 15 PCPs at that time. I certainly didn't get into medicine to get out of it into a leadership standpoint. These, these doors just kind of opened over time. And they opened around that time when uh, Obamacare came into the world and we had already created this care coordination model in Village Health Partners. And that's how we got the level three certification. It just seemed like the right thing to do instead of putting so much work on the physician to create a team-based care model. We knew, we'd known for forever that teams do better than individuals. I had gotten an executive MBA after I started my first year of practice around 2001-2, and it gave me some concepts because I was a zoology major in, in medical school because that was the quickest way to become a doctor. And I, I don't really know what zoology is, but the concepts that I learned at the executive MBA really resonated with me in running a business. And you start thinking about that systems thinking and design and strategy. I really realized that was my gifts and, and talents then kind of became supercharged or the light bulb came on to use your Thomas Edison reference again. And so we started building what we would think would be a better way to take, take care of people. And with that NCQA accreditation that we got, it attracted the payers and the payers wanted to do a patient-centered medical home deal. And all of them came with basically the same construct, this idea of a care coordination fee to create an infrastructure to do more 
value-based care and what that meant at the time. There was some technology, there were some people, there was some process, right? This was all around 2008. And could you ultimately get a, a scoreboard of clinical goals plus a financial target and be able to show that you can provide a better value than the market? And we did that with most of the carriers. And our little practice, I don't know, at the time probably had 50,000 lives, started to really show performance. And the aha moment was when I started getting the data of the market to see how much different we were in cost. And it was sometimes 20 or 30%. And you got to remember this point in time. You're in 2010 and 11, you're post-recession, Obamacare has become the letter of the law. You have all of these value-based ideas coming around and designs that were all based on the primary care physician-patient relationship. And here I sat with a patient-centered medical home practice that had been doing this kind of work for several years before it was even a term, showing value already. And we were growing, which was contradictory to what was going on in 2010, because you were seeing mass consolidation of hospitals buying up primary care practices to gain market share. So we were growing really against the grain. And there was a moment, and I remember it was one of those kind of coffee shop Jerry Maguire moments, when I realized how important our work was to our communities. And I have to go, and this connects to our purpose of helping communities thrive and how I came out of that. I got to go back to the fact that I was born in Hillsborough, Texas, and there's only three doctors there. And those three doctors were the mayor, the head of the city council, the head of the school board, the head of the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Baptist church. And they were on the sidelines for all the football games. And of course they did their work during the week in the exam room, but they really took care of the whole town this small little town. And I, and I always noticed that. And it was what led me to be a doctor because they were such great mentors of how they cared for the whole town as a, as a community. They were doing population health before that was a term. And I always wondered how I could emulate that. And when I started seeing that data, Eric and Daniel, and showed so how much different the costs were from what we were just doing, what made so much sense to us from just a team-based care model, and saw this consolidation that was happening in our market and across the country at, at, at that time, and the, how the prices would continue to go up, the quality was not getting any better, the personalization of healthcare was becoming under a giant brand, and we were losing some of that independent physician practices that actually were better for our communities. It was literally the health of our community was at stake. And so this general, this generalized large purpose around helping communities thrive, we believe there's three pillars to a community, the triad of health, education, and business, jobs. And if any of those are off, any of those three are off, you can't have a thriving community. And they're interrelated. You have to be healthy to be educated to be able to go to your job. You have to be educated to be able to get a job. So they're all interrelated. And so our role was to help communities thrive, was to to continuously, continuously work at building a better healthcare system and one that ultimately would deliver more value. And the way to start in the same way that we think about nationally now is you start with primary care. And so we said, can we take what we're doing at Village Health Partners and go all the way across the metro area, which is at that time, six or 7 million people and create what became Catalyst Health Network. Could we find other independent physicians before they became part of the two major hospital systems and that prices were then locked in forever as, and, and there was no way to have value creation from the ground up 
the ingenuity of America be able to happen in our community for, for one of the biggest three parts of the three-legged stool, the, the healthcare. And we kind of launched Catalyst and we started going out to friends and family, so to speak, of, of other family physicians and pediatricians and internists in our area who were still staunchly independent and said, hey, look, we understand if you wanted to go work for a hospital system, you probably would have done it by now. We don't think you'll be able to survive long-term as a small practice. I run the, one of the largest practices in town and we think it's going to be hard. But if we band together, there's these things we can do as a team. There's these, there's technology that we can do that can give us more information about our patients and that we can actually start to show our value to the people that we give care to and the people who pay for that care and, and heretofore continuously then get alignment around not only can you survive as an independent physician practice, but you can thrive. And if you thrive as an independent practice, we see the data that shows that the community continue to thrive as one of the three big pillars of any community. And so that's the walk to Catalyst. And I guess because we started with zero six years ago, and now we're at a thousand in multiple markets and we've saved you know closer to a hundred million dollars now, I would guess that we've so-called herded the cats and you do that around a common purpose. And the model that makes that work, you asked about the model from the design and the system that we created. It's this kind of age old question from business is what do you centralize and what do you decentralize? Well, the PCP is decentralized across the network in 250 plus access points, closing in on 300 now. We centralize the care team, but we make the care team personal to the individual physician. So John and Jane and, and Sally and Bill are always Dr. Crow's care coordinator, case manager, pharmacist, and tech. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a Medicare patient, doesn't matter whether it's a Blue Cross Blue Shield, if the, if the patient moves from Blue Cross to Cigna, it's still that same extended team. And we augment that with tech, tech that allows for easy visibility to steerage to actually track our patients instead of giving them business cards or tick sheets to go get this or that, we actually track which way they go. And that allows for communication to happen across providers. And so more communication that helps build a better picture of the patient's actual health. And then everyone on the team can see that. And then the patient through tech can asynchronously or synchronously interact with not just the physician, but anyone on the team, whether that's a pharmacist or a care manager. And if they need anything from an intimacy at scale, like we say, then we can bring that in. Maybe that's something from a social worker. Maybe that's something from a spiritual standpoint. Maybe that's something specific to a disease like, like diabetics. And why this works, people say, well, you can't scale that. Well, sure you can. We're at scale in this geography and, and gaining on it and others. It's because you're leveraging the most important thing in a relationship, which is trust. And if you want to make change, anything in the world, you have to have trust. And so what we do is we take the most trusted relationship, which is the, the PCP and the patient in healthcare, which is why all the models are built on, on that relationship. That's a trusted relationship. We extend that trust to the entire care team. And so the patient feels even more known than before. They're not just a visit two or three times a year to the physician. They're known to his team. And that team is his eyes and ears or her eyes and ears across time. And you longitudinally take care of a patient year after year after year, and you get relationship compounding, just like you get financial interest compounding. And if you're just a little bit better and you make a few better decisions each year, those compound over time into lower costs and better health. And ultimately, everybody's individual story and individual better health 
one, after two, after a hundred, after a million, ultimately creates a healthier community and helps us start to live out our purpose of helping communities thrive. Dr. Crow, that's an amazing story. And I, I think you make it sound easy, <laughs> but to fully appreciate your success as an innovator here, I think we've got to talk about the difficulties of your mission and helping these communities thrive. For anyone outside of the Dallas market, myself included, I think of Dallas as like the entrepreneurial city that I read about oftentimes in business news, an affluent hotbed of prosperity, economic growth. However, the economic prosperity within Dallas isn't necessarily quite the rising tide you would hope for. There's significant income disparities between the haves and the have-nots, and it's really apparent when looking at public health outcomes. For example, the average life expectancy of someone living in the South Dallas zip code of 75215, less than five miles south of downtown Dallas, is 66 years. Compare that to the 90-year life expectancy for someone living in zip code 75204, less than two miles north of downtown. There's a handful of miles, but 24 years of difference in life expectancy. The challenges of delivering value-based care in this metroplex is immense. And your physicians are serving communities that are mired in this systemic multi-generational crisis, where one in three children in Dallas live in poverty, and you experience the third highest rate of child poverty in the nation. Dr. Crow, as I understand, your driving force as a leader is to create primary care for all that's enabled by these deep relationships of trust that you speak of with the communities that you serve. Can you describe how this primary care for all philosophy is driving your transformative outcomes? And what role is virtualized primary care playing in your network right now to enhance the strategy of primary care for all? And I'd love to hear more about the Catalyst Community Foundation that you recently founded to address the enormous disparities in access to affordable quality care, especially primary care. Ultimately, this connects very much to our purpose of helping communities thrive. And assumed in the word community for us is everyone, not just people who have insurance, not just people who can afford care. It's everyone. If you believe that a community has to thrive with having this idea of the pillar of education, health, and business, that means you need everyone to have education, you need everyone to have health, and everyone have a chance for a job. And so we take that very, very seriously. And you did a very good job of describing the tale of two cities that Dallas is. I mean, Dallas Independent School District, again, education, this is where this overlaps as part of a, a community. Dallas Independent School District, 85% of the kids are in poverty. 85% of the kids. It's absolutely a tale of two cities. It's a Southern sector versus a Northern sector. And so we think that all those great things that you said about Dallas, are true and it won't always be true because ultimately a high tide lifts all boats and a low tide will pull down all boats. We have to help everyone. And that goes back to how it worked in Hillsborough with those three doctors. They were helping everyone in every capacity that they could and that's what we're gonna do as well. Why primary care though? Again, <laughs> our healthcare system was built in a way different way from the battlefields of the prior centuries into hospitals and then later primary care became a little more apparent that maybe that's how we should have started versus tertiary care, but that's not how the story went. What we're doing is trying to rewrite the story the way other places do when you're getting to start fresh. And what you start fresh with is if you have endpoints 
around if you have a primary care physician and you have outcomes like you live longer and you cost less over your lifetime from a health standpoint and you have more good days than bad, whether that's at work or home or if you want to count them in disability days, living longer, costing less and having more good days than bad seems like a pretty good prescription of a treatment that you would want everyone in the world to have. Maybe everyone can't have a hip replacement, but everyone should be able to have primary care. And so we absolutely believe that there's a lot of politics that we play at the national level between the Democrats and the Republicans that I don't really care for either way, because what we do care, care about is our communities and, and the longevity and the thrivingness of those communities. And we think primary care for all is a key for that. And we think those, those endpoints tell us that that's what we should really be, be striving for. The virtual care piece of what has happened in the pandemic has been absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. In a matter of 10 days, we took those 1,000 PCPs and about 15% of them had the capabilities of telehealth and less than 1% of their, we'll call it the daily interactions that they were having with their patients were actually through telehealth. 10 days later, we had it at about 98% of those practices had the telehealth capabilities on multiple platforms because we had to use multiple platforms to get them up. And around 80, 85% of their daily transactions got to telehealth. And then if you think about what else telehealth can do, we're all figuring this out now. We're all a couple clicks to the right worse for our mental health right now. So if you were on the border, you're definitely you know, in a tough spot right now. If you were already in a tough spot, you're worse. Certainly the telehealth capabilities have really helped that to what we think is a huge piece of primary care, given that depending on your stats, one out of three or one out of every four patients you see over a period of time is going to have some type of mental health issue. So we think that type of capability, the fact that we use our care team is an asynchronous or synchronous utilization of telehealth to help support that relationship, again, to help those patients be known even more and therefore trust us even more to help them in their healthcare journey. It goes a long, long, long way. And then when you think about these areas that are healthcare deserts, these areas in South Dallas that you mentioned earlier that don't have a doctor's office, they don't have a pharmacy, right? So as we're rolling out vaccines right now and we're going to use pharmacies, well, they're, they're pharmacy deserts. They're also job deserts. They're also food deserts. And so all these socioeconomic issues that we call social determinants, they have all of them in these areas. So where do you even start? Primary care is a piece of what's needed, but it's not nearly enough. And so how do you work with the multitude of resources you need to actually build a community from the foundation up, especially one that's been neglected for, for decades and decades? And so what happened to start the foundation, which was a part of your question, is that as I watched the governor the county judge and the mayor have daily press conferences throughout April about how we haven't been able to get testing into the tougher communities. And while I watched our organization put up 30 testing centers across North Texas in a matter of a couple of weeks, at some points in the spring, we were probably doing 20, 25% of the testing as just private practices. I thought, well, we could do that. Well, let's just go down there and let's do it ourselves. And so we partnered with a group called Project Unity and Pastor Richie Butler, and he and I got together and he had what I mentioned earlier, he had the trust of those communities. While it was a healthcare desert, it was not a church desert. Those areas do have churches and the church is a place where the neighbors actually trust. 
And so we, we, again, we used that trust to come in as a partner, as a subordinate to that trusted church to begin to use their people as volunteers and translators of what we were doing to help test people of color, people of lower socioeconomic status, people who weren't maybe even legal citizens in the United States and certainly weren't going to show up into some places to get to get tested, but, but needed to. So we could learn more and they could also have that information for their own families and safety. And so we started in May. And then of course the racial tensions just heated up like crazy. We, but we continued and then it got hot in the summer and we continued and we would go every day to a different church five days a week, all through the summer and into the fall. And now we're going to use that same infrastructure for vaccines. But ultimately what it did is it allowed us to become a trusted part of their communities. They had not been trusting the healthcare for good reason, the healthcare system for, for very good reasons. You think about surprise bills, you know, every bill they get is a surprise bill. And so we've now got the right relationships and we're now working with partnerships with, with DISD, with some elementary schools as another trusted center in those areas with some community centers. And we're going to be using our foundation to not only raise money and help people in philanthropy understand that that rather than give to the end of the value chain, which is the hospital, if you really want to make impact and high leverage, you go upstream, think of a supply chain, you go upstream and you connect with people and help keep them healthy, connect them to social services and give them all this primary care that has shown to help you live longer, cost less and have more good days and bad. And so our vision of the Catalyst Community Foundation is that you know two decades from now, because we play a longer game than most, is that just like the children of today expect to have a free elementary education and clean water to drink, that their kids would get that and they would expect to also have a primary care physician to help them with their health. And so you start getting to investing in everyone having health, everyone having education that gives them the chance to get a, a better job. And ultimately what we'd like to prove in those communities is that there's a business model to take care of people through a care team model that's virtualized in a lot of ways, but starts to show a business model that begins to attract people back into the community. People want to take care of where they came from. You look at Houston right now, it's got a medical school in a zone that's one of the poorest areas of that Houston area where they're gonna take students and hope that they'll graduate them so they'll come back and take care of that. We wanna attract those people too, whether those are pharmacists, nurses, doctors, then ultimately this becomes a, we're not trying to be philanthropy forever. We're actually trying to build a self-sustaining community that can care for itself because there's a business model there for health professionals to want to come in and care for that. And the community is actually all being cared for in a primary care setting. So that's the view of the future for us, for, for Catalyst and how virtual works in and why we believe primary care for all is the place we need to go in America. Well, Dr. Crow, this primary care for all vision, it's so important. And what I really love about the design of Catalyst Health Network is that it allows primary care physicians to stay independent. And your model really supports their long-term success. Staying independent as a PCP, it seems to me, is almost impossible these days. I mean, especially in a hyper-competitive market like yours, where there's a feeding frenzy of health systems and payers and PE-backed physician aggregators looking to always consolidate and go after primary care providers. And at a national level, we're already seeing that. There was a mass consolidation of providers before COVID-19 with the amount of capital and 
the velocity to which it was deployed. I mean, it was phenomenal. And we're still seeing that post-COVID. I think last year there was upwards of $60 billion in deals that were done. And, and we should see that continue to rise since the multiples on invested capital on healthcare PE investments made during recessions meaningfully outperforms those in other industries. So I'm very interested and wanted to ask you about this concept of primary care consolidation versus independence and what this means to, to your physicians and your network and really for the future of primary care. I mean, should we worry about the corporatization of primary care? And, and if I'm an independent, financially distressed PCP trying to survive in your market, what should I be thinking about in terms of viability? I mean, how would I balance the options of, you know, selling to a PE firm or a payer back? sub or going into the health system versus joining an independent network like yours. I mean, for PCPs that are out there, you know, maybe they're listening to this episode, they're trying to preserve their autonomy. I mean, how can they survive in value-based care when it takes such a significant amount of capital to build the infrastructure to take risk? I mean, how do you guide your PCPs through this important decision point when presenting them the option to join Catalyst Health Network? This goes into the, the healthcare is local question that we get a lot and what's good for one location is not necessarily good for another. So I can't speak for all locations. I do think there's a inevitable, well, there has been an inevitable consolidation that has happened. Whether it's sustainable or not, I don't know. And that's one of the ways we keep independence independent because we talk to them about what their long-term strategy is. And because we do have this what we call an infinite game or long-term strategy. We don't have any private equity behind us. We're very unique in the fact that we are privately held and plan to be as as, as long as we can. And, and, and we understand that there's different forces that can make you make different decisions, but we've had a pretty good track record for six or seven years and are as big as many of those uh, companies that you're talking about that have taken PE money and gone public with SPACs. And you know we have way more lives than a lot of, a lot of those organizations. And we've just chosen not to go that direction because that's not the orientation of, of the owners and what we we believe in in terms of helping communities thrive and so that helps actually that orientation helps with our physicians who have a similar long-term orientation they're like hey i don't i don't necessarily want an investor telling me what to do or the public markets pe have three to five years wall street has a 90-day cycle that's not very consistent with a long-term primary care relationship that you have with your patient. I think those forces will, over time, be difficult. I hear it from a lot of physicians who consolidated with hospitals even, you know, five to 10 to 15 years ago, how kind of frustrated they are. I think that's actually going to be kinder and gentler than a PE-backed or certainly a publicly traded company. That's my own opinion. And at the same time, I think there's some organizations who do fantastic work. And you've had people on in the past that I've listened to, and, and I think they do great work. That's not necessarily just a blanket statement for all, but there is that, that difference that I think is, is stereotypical for each side. So how we talk to, to our physicians about joining us is we say, yeah, we do think that if you're one, two to three doctor practice left alone, you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to have a really hard time in the value-based constructs is more risk gets put your way and more expectations. Heck, just the consumerism of our world with an iPhone and all the things that are available to you on that now, you could love your physician and trust them, but if they can't keep up with some just basic table stakes that, that are now coming on from a technology and service standpoint, people will move. And so we get them on the purpose alignment, the idea of helping our communities thrive and that they're a huge piece of that. 
and that they actually have the ability to survive and thrive, but they need to be uh, part of something bigger. There's this team league analogy, Eric, that you've probably heard before that you know, there's all these individual teams and, and then there's the league in Texas that plays real well because we know football works as a good analogy. And so we're the, we're the NFL and all the teams are, are, are the different physician practices and we do the TV contracts and some of the marketing and bring some services and they don't have to repeat it 200 times. And there's some shared services that are the same shared services and a lot of the technology that you would get if you went to a PE back company, if you went to a hospital or, 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 or such. And so if we can bring them some of those same things with a, an aligned purpose, it's more aligned to, to them and the, how they want to care for their patients and let them have some of that autonomy still available to them of, of how, they, how they run their business, that, that, that works a lot. And, and the services we give them are completely holistic. We're not just a tech play. We're not just a clinical play. We're not just an MSO business play. We're a little bit of all that. And so we started our business starting off with helping physicians really run, whether it's their, their rev cycle, their IT, their EMR, their financial management reporting, and giving them visibility to the operations and how it connects to the finances and how that can then drive some strategy, actually give them awareness and choices of what's going on in their business. That, that's huge for them because they've never seen that before for in most cases. And so what we then have is for every moment, they're not having to worry about their business part of their practice. They can focus on clinical or more, maybe sometimes more importantly, their family life or whatever leisure time they want to spend to limit their burnout. Our burnout rates compared to some of the employed physicians are, are much, much lower because we've, we've helped them in some of the harder parts, which is that business side. And then on the clinical side, we're giving them the support. We're physician led and physician built. Our board's physicians, we run everything by our physicians. It's all built in ways that actually supports them do their job better and be able to see that they can create value for their patients. And how are they creating value? Well, they know the clinical cares better because we have the support services that show that. They get the feedback from their patients of how much they are appreciating the care. And then they're seeing the financial returns. I mean, our physicians flat out are doing much better with Catalyst than they were in the three, five, seven years previously. And so if you can show them that, now that we have a track record, there's a little bit of a, a continuity. We, we rarely, rarely lose a physician. And if we do, it's usually at the very, very end of their career. And they're using some type of sell strategy as their kind of exit into retirement. That's really the only time. So we feel like we kind of got this model humming pretty well in, in the markets that we're in. Christopher, I'm really fascinated with how your independent physician network was able to achieve this high level of clinical integration. In 2017, Catalyst Health Network was just the fifth in the nation to earn URAC's full accreditation in clinical integration, which requires, as I understand, a rigorous review process over the course of six to nine months. To become accredited, the organization must meet URAC standards in six crucial areas, including structures and operations, health IT, clinical management, population health, care coordination, and performance measurement and reporting. I've learned that Catalyst Health has earned reaccreditation now for clinical integration in 2021. In fact, earning a perfect score in the review process. So congratulations for that. Thank you. <laughs> As demand for value-based care accelerates, this accreditation solidifies Catalyst's place as a gold standard for advancing primary care. I'd really love to hear more about the clinical integration strategy that you've used. To be honest, when I think of 
clinically integrated networks, oftentimes I envision a health system that has this monolithic corporate structure and employed physicians. They're all using the same EHR and, and they're all under the same tax ID. So how is Catalyst Health able to demonstrate such astounding success as a CIN with this network of independent physicians? And can you tell our listeners about how your CIN has joined forces with another prominent CIN in the area, Baylor Scott and White's Quality Alliance, to bring even a higher level of innovation and integration to the Dallas market? And what will this CIN partnership do to accelerate the creation of high quality, affordable healthcare solutions in North Texas? We're very proud of our URAC accreditations. We think of them as our championship banners, like you might in sports that you hang from the drafters. And yes, we did just get uh, recertified. And I don't think anyone has ever scored 100 before. So we're, we're very proud of that. We scored 100 the first time. We also have uh, URAC accreditation for case management, transitions of care, and we're about to get one for pharmacy. There's no one in the country. You're right. We're one of like five or six that have the clinical integration one. There's no one in the country who has all of those. And as you add pharmacy, you know, that'll even put us further out uh, in front of others. And what I would say, what it did for us is you're right. We're, you could think of it as a big monolithic health system. We're certainly not. We have 13 different EMRs on a bunch of different versions. And so we actually looked at the URAC accreditation and thought that it, it really did give us a skin on the wall that allowed us to be able to, to, to certainly negotiate contracts, but also allowed us to grow up and have some of the attributes of a larger system or business like you said, it's nine to 12 months of very rigorous areas of work around certainly some boring things like you know, policies and procedures and how you communicate and how you govern, which is actually very important. And then how you ultimately share information and work together to take care of patients. We knew we had the right care model, but how do you document that? How do you create standard operating procedures to start to get predictability in the work that you're doing. And so URAC actually forced us to grow up in those areas to be able to put a, an operating model together that actually performs and to know how to go back and reflect on it and continuously improve it and have monitors and checks and balances in place. So we're very appreciative to URAC for actually giving us that way actually to grow up. To go a little bit forward on that question about clinical integration and, and, the, and the URAC certification, it also helps with the physicians. It helps give them a playbook, so to speak. And we talk to them about, hey, this clinical integration is important. Here's the playbook that defines that. This is how we're going to communicate. Here's why. And so it's, it's helped with engagement. It's, it's, created, it's created more credibility, and therefore, it's kind of a, a virtuous cycle with engagement with the physician. So I will, I will say that. They're also proud of that as well. As it relates to your question about Baylor, we look around the region and the state, you know, we're across East Texas, we're now in, in Central Texas as well. And Baylor, we think, performs best relative to a lot of the different systems that are trying to do value-based care. It's very hard, let's be honest, and you know this and you've had people on, it's very hard for a hospital system to work in a value-based construct because their business model at the core is is revenue through people being sick in their facilities. And so from a value-based construct, when the goal is to keep people out of facilities, it's in perfect incongruence in business models. But at the same time, as a primary care network, we do want downstream partners that we can work with because with, our patients naturally over time are going to get older and potentially unhealthier. We are playing in 
in the Medicare and Medicare Advantage space for sure with all our value-based contracts. And so we want partners to that. So we looked around and looked at the data. Of course, we have as much data as anybody because we're an all-payer value-based contract organization. And so we decided to reach out to them and talk about how we might work together for the overarching purpose of helping our communities thrive. They're a mission-based organization as well. And so could we get together and dream up how we might be able to put a plan together that individuals, small employers, people who have a hard time at getting access to affordable health care, could we put something together, and this was kind of my requirement, that had primary care for all in a subscription-based model of prospective payment so that we we're going to do something radically different than our fee-for-service model, and they had to agree to that. And credit Jim Hinton, who's the CEO, and he and I have become friends and think a lot alike around how we would like to transform our communities to better deliver healthcare and have ultimately helping our communities thrive. And so we're we're in the midst of that. We hope next quarter, the beginning of next quarter, we'll be able to show what our first product will look like that the community will be able to purchase. And hopefully it'll be an easier way to have a provider-based plan. It can be used by anybody, whether it's an insurance company that wants to, to use it, uh, whether it's an individual corporation that wants to use it. And ultimately, we, we may be able to sell it to individuals who don't have health insurance that want to look at a, at a different place on the exchange. None of that has been determined yet, but it, certainly that's the idea is right now, healthcare insurance is really, really hard to understand. And so how can we as a continuum of providers of primary care physicians down to facilities get together and say, how can we care for the community better? How can we take down some sacred cows of how we've thought about health insurance and just get to service? And what does the community need? And how can we offer a service that's easier for them to consume and can be sold in a variety of different distribution channels so that everyone has access to it if it ultimately can be a better solution? And there's just lots and lots of ways, and you guys talk about it on here, there's lots of ways to strip out costs. In the premiums today, there's a lot of point solution, non-value things being added and administrative costs that don't have to be in there that have just kind of ballooned and blossomed over time because employers haven't been looking the way the government has. And so we want to just strip that out and make, make healthcare simple again to interact with. Well, Christopher, I know the CIN collaboration with Baylor Scott and Y is relatively new and, you know, more is to come on that, obviously. But I think about the success of Catalyst Health Network over the last few years, and it, and it has thrived based on partnerships. And I, I wanted to explore with you, particularly your partnerships around payers and with employers to make joint decisions and perform clinical integration activities and work together on pathways You know, over the last few years, you forged some pretty important payer relationships and payers have struggled at this for years, trying to develop their own care management and disease management programs on their own. And they've had limited results and employers, particularly self-insured employers, they're now demanding ways to do things differently with regards to healthcare spending, especially now. I mean, I think in the last year, just with the financial setback and with a lot of companies that, you know, whereas maybe there was a, it, it was an item on their balance sheet where. You know, healthcare is the cost of doing business. Now it's a line item that's just too big to ignore. In employers, we often think of them as wielding power, but I think right now they feel powerless 
because I mean, employer sponsored health insurance has risen 54% since 2009. And the employer healthcare market was already dysfunctional and ineffective at producing value in health. I've read stats like poor health costs employers like 530 billion on top of the 880 billion that they already spend in premium dollars. And then you have this whole fleecing of employers and employees with hospitals that rely on commercial insurance to subsidize their losses on the public pay side. And I just wonder how this can continue to, to operate, you know, and, and be a part of our healthcare environment. We have to have a shift to value-based care and you and the work that your team at Catalyst Health Network has really done to forge these partnerships. And what I found really interesting in just your history is that you started from the bottom up with commercial patients. And that's so much more different than starting with Medicare. I mean, there's a huge opportunity that you've recognized early on, instead of starting with the lowest socioeconomic segment in the population with the highest level of chronic disease burden, you really honed the skills in your network and value-based care by managing younger working class people and their families and helping those communities thrive. So I just wanted to know, Christopher, if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about how Catalyst approaches partnerships with employers and payers and how that collaboration really leads to best practices and value-based care. And has your network been able to pursue direct contracting arrangements with large self-insured employers? And ultimately, what is your take right now on the employer healthcare landscape? I think when we absolutely are a collaborative group, we, we take that not only seriously, but we take that as our number one core value. If you were to walk into our headquarters, our main guest conference room that you come into across the front doors before you come in says relationships matter. That is our number one core value. Our, our purpose is to help communities thrive, but our number one core value is that relationships matter. And so these relationships that I have with payers go back 15, 20 years. Some of the same people I work with literally at the Aetna's United Blue Cross and Signage are the same people that I've been working with that, you know, maybe weren't the leaders 15 years ago, but likely are in those positions now. And it's something that we take seriously with our patients. And it's something that we begin to hone now with multiple years of working with employers. I probably spend as much time, if not more, talking to employers the last few years and benefit consultants for sure than actually the payers. We have great relationships with the payers. If you think about how we started in 2015, it was really an outcry from the payers that said, hey, you at Village Health Partners are saving some money here on your performance. Could you do it for a lot more people? And that got us thinking about what ultimately became Catalyst. And so, yeah, they were very helpful, just like they did the first medical home contracts with us at Village Health Partners. They did the first value-based contracts or what we sometimes call ACO contracts with Catalyst Health Network. And so it's been a really good run. And the majority of that 75, now almost $100 million has come in that commercial market. And because we were built by physicians and we think of the community as a whole, Eric, 85%, 80, 85% of our patient panel for physicians are these commercially insured patients. And so while I completely understand the economic model of Medicare Advantage, the physician's mind share on any given day is 80, 85% people walking into their exam rooms that have Blue Cross United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana. And so it makes the most sense to me is if you actually want to actually change healthcare, you better start where there's a chance for them to use a model that can work across all their patients and to try to do it 
over a sliver of patients to start is a little bit schizophrenic, and, and we knew that. Now, that doesn't mean that there's some really successful organizations, but that's mostly what they concentrate on as a segment, because obviously the economics of that segment are fantastic given the, the risk and the model that you can use for that. But that's not how we started. <laughs> we started trying to help independent physicians who already had a practice full of what the community represented and we wanted to try to organize them in a way. And so you start where they have the most and that's the commercial. So that's how that started. And the great thing about it is there's not as much competition there. Same with what we're doing down at the foundation. We don't have a lot of competition or regulation for that matter in the poorest of the poor where people are in poverty and they're either don't have coverage or it's Medicaid, you don't see a lot of competition. And so it's another great place for us to really make a really big impact. In, into the community. Those are kind of two separate things all under the umbrella of primary care for all and helping communities thrive. And so we've seen the last few years, what you described with the employers. Those are all stats that we use all the time. I think you've had Dave Chase on. If you haven't, that, that'd be a good one. But we talk about the, the fleecing of America and how healthcare stole the American dream. We, because like you said, the costs have doubled and doubled again over the last 20 years. And that has taken away an increase in wages. Part of the reason you see this giant polarity of, of politics is because people are, the middle class are angry because this is one of the first generations that hasn't done better than the prior generation from a financial standpoint. And a lot of that's because our healthcare has taken way more than it, it deserves. And so one of the things that we talk about all the time is for every single dollar that we save in healthcare that keeps from being spent unnecessarily, either through duplicity, administrative waste, or someone that could have had a, a life change or a, or a different piece of uh, medication adherence that ultimately gets to a, a less costly version of themselves, like primary care promises to do. Every dollar that doesn't get wasted like that in healthcare goes back somewhere else where it can be helping the community thrive, whether that be at home, around the dinner table with food, transportation, education, clothes, whether that's at a company that can help increase wages, add more jobs, do more R&D on products and services for a community or the community itself, the city, the county. You know, you can fill more potholes. You can have more after school programs in schools. You can have more cops and environment. So this matters to actually helping our communities thrive. The healthcare industry is taking too much. And I beat on employers locally all the time because I tell them that they have a huge fault in this because they allow the cost to continue to go up and up and up. The government actually doesn't allow that to happen in the same way. And so how can the employers start to stop feeling so helpless in spending only a meeting and a half a year on this and wondering why their costs go up? I talked to all these employers. Let's pretend there's an employer in town that's a CEO who's got a billion dollar company. I ask him or her, generally, my first question is, is How's your $35 million healthcare company doing? And they say, we, we're in the widgets business. We don't have a healthcare company. I said, sure you do. You got a $35 million healthcare company sitting inside your business. Who's running that? How's it performing? Oh, it goes up in costs every year. I'm like, wow, is that how you treat all your entire business? And it really hits them right between the eyes. Now you got to go back to relationships matter. I have to have the right relationship with that CEO, which I often do in this area of North Texas they're starting to kind of wake up. And so they're asking for what are the things they can do differently? I said, for one, you could start making sure you, you have a benefit design that promotes primary care. High deductible plans do not do that. First dollar coverage do not do that. It encourages people to wait and you get what you get, which is higher costs every year. And if you do pay for it, you pay for it in fee for service rather than a subscription model. 
and you don't align the incentives. And so we go through this whole process of, of these products that we're building around uh, Catalyst Health Network that help get to a prospective payment model to align the care model of longitudinal great health with a financing model that makes more sense, like Medicare Advantage. And so, yeah, we do have a variety of some direct contracting, some are some of which are negotiated through current payers. We have, you know, a couple of Fortune 100 here, another Fortune 500 here. And then as well as we got some small 50 employers that we work with in kind of a concierge kind of way as we're doing, again, going back to Thomas Edison, these value attempts at learning how to package primary care in a way that's easily digestible and shown to be valuable over time, that ultimately it can come in different flavors from the Baylor, Baylor JV that you saw down to just people who just want to buy primary care. It's kind of a novel concept, but if eight out of nine of us on any given year just need primary care, why wouldn't we just buy that? How do you do that? Um, and so that's where these employers, whether they're, especially those ones that are moving from the fully insured to the self-insured, they're generally the choice makers can make kind of decisions over lunch sometimes. And so we, we like that smaller segment uh, to talk to. And there's certainly a lot of appetite to do something new. And this goes back to what COVID has also done, just like it did for virtualized care. What it's done is it's woken up a lot of employers to say, I got to do something about this for two reasons. One, the costs are variable. And number two, they're realizing more and more that their people are their most important asset and they got to invest in them. And, and going back to the helping communities thrive, I say it over and over again, because we do say it over and over again, is you got to have a healthy workforce to have a productive workforce. Dr. Crow, thanks so much for that explanation. I really enjoy hearing your description of that. I want to circle back, though, to one of your comments and in answering Eric's question about Medicare Advantage. And I know you've been successful in the commercial market, but I think you're also thinking about this fully delegated Medicare Advantage and full risk within CMMI direct contracting potentially, which we know starts in, in 2022 for traditional Medicare beneficiaries. And so the enrollment growth trajectory for Medicare Advantage in tandem with MA-like operating levers of the new DC program that allows for beneficiary engagement incentives, benefit enhancements, and voluntary patient alignment seems to make MA and DC attractive risk-based models for most primary care physicians. So if they can do it well, it's really a remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health with rewarding economics. As a physician-led risk-bearing entity and one that has already paid the table stakes for compliance investment and population infrastructure required to manage commercial lives, is Catalyst Health Network now considering branching out more into the senior space? Also, what are your thoughts about what CMMI is doing with the launch of the new direct contracting payment model next year? And is prospective payment for primary care the future with both Medicare and commercially insured populations? So we already participate in Medicare Advantage contracts here and across all of our regions in East Texas. And our doctors in Austin are involved with that as well. Kevin Spencer is a member of Catalyst. You had him on and he, he has his partnership where he's doing Medicare Advantage. So we work with the with the local Medicare Advantage companies here in, in this market and in, in East Texas to take care of those Medicare Advantage lives. And we're under a prospective payment model with shared risk. We think our model of care, we know it performs and it performs very, very well in Medicare Advantage. Part of the reason we think it works well is because, again, we're providing a singular model and a singular care team to the physicians for all their patients. And so when we hear that 
Medicare is going to move to a DCE model where you're going to be able to get prospective payment for that as well. We really like it. Anything that allows us to add patients that the physician is already seeing to better align to our care delivery model where the financing model aligns to it is music to our ears. And, and this is exactly that. Most every patient now that our physicians see will be an aligned model around value. Now, CMMI in particular with what they're doing with DCE, we think it's a great first step. It's much better in our opinion than the MSSP. And so we like the direction they're headed. Your question about prospective payment for the government programs, for us, it'll already, it's already there. The question is, can we get to move that into the, the commercial lives? All of our direct to employer product does have a prospective payment financing model uh, underpinning it. The work that we do with our partners at Blue, United, Cigna, and Aetna has yet to do that, but we're actively working with all of them on products that would do that. We absolutely are okay with taking on more risk with the right model. The wrong model is a PPO model. People who know me know that I call the PPO the, the PPO buffet because you're just giving everyone a corporate credit card and you're telling them go to the buffet and start at the dessert end and eat as much as you want as many times as you want. And that's just, that's not, <laughs> it's not a place where we're going to take risk. So the problem we have as a society and the, the payers have this problem, we have this problem, we all have this problem is that we turned HMO into a really, really dirty word in the nineties. And so anything that looks or smells like that, people have a reaction to if they're over 50 years old, which I am exactly almost 50. So any, anybody older than me has a really hard time with that, but obviously the times have changed a bunch. And obviously the government is leading the way in this for primary care. You should absolutely pay prospectively. If you want a longitudinal relational care model where people are known over time and you want to get the benefits of that compounding the relationship that can happen, then you need to pay it to use layman's term, like a subscription. Doesn't mean you can't have bonuses and risks and things involved, but you need to pay it that way rather than it be a reactive care model. And I think I've probably been as outspoken as anybody nationally since COVID happened because the fee-for-service game completely failed the primary care physician practices and to where you've seen a lot of them continue to be in a lot of pain from that time when they lost that revenue because that was the only model they had. Those of us that had more value-based models made it through. We didn't lose one physician to the COVID pandemic. We did a lot of other things to help them in terms of telehealth and PPP loans and helping them with a financial plan for each individual practice. But without that, and just in the pure fee for service, it really, really puts a practice at risk. And it's just not an aligned payment model for long-term care. Christopher, thanks for that. And as I was preparing for this conversation today, there are just so many outstanding initiatives that we could ask you about, but you mentioned it earlier in one of your responses, and it's an area that I'd really like to discuss with you in more detail, and that's how Catalyst Health Network is approaching pharmacy integration. So medication adherence impact on costs through reduced inpatient hospital stays and emergency visits associated with congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, you know, these types of diseases, it's in the thousands of dollars per patient per year. A case study of your integrated pharmacy program shows the impact that a trusted pharmacist relationship can have on patient health. For example, a 59-year-old male with hypertension and dyslipidemia went from an average monthly spend of $4,000 to $250 with that pharmacist support. Can you help our listeners understand more about your integrated pharmacy program? 
Yeah, you bet. It it might be the most favorite part of what we've done heretofore. And I think it's because it adds the most value to the entire system. Going back to having things built by physicians, you know, when I was seeing patients, the thing that I would get most frustrated about is I actually didn't always know what patients were taking. They would come in on three or four chronic medications. Let's say two of them are for blood pressure. And I'll say, how often do you take of that? And they would say, oh, I'm taking that blue one most of the time. And I take that other one every morning. Sometimes I miss the night one. And then their blood pressures would be kind of borderline. What do you do with that information? Do you add a medicine? Do you tell them to try to take it more often, which is usually what I would do? And then they would come back and they go, yeah, I don't know if I'm taking it anymore or less or not. So this idea of medication adherence or the management of the pill bottles always drove me crazy because they would bring in their pill bottles and they would have multiples of one medication and then they'd be out of another. And I'd be like, how does this happen? They said, well, the, the insurance company just keeps sending me this stuff. Well, we, we know who's paying for that, even if they're not taking it, the employer or the government is paying for those pills in, in most cases. And we know that nationally, the number is somewhere around 60% of people are adherent to their medication plan. That means we're paying for 40% of drugs that never are taken. That's a massive number. It's a huge piece of our GDP, actually. It's just untaked, uh, unswallowed pills. <laughs> Think about that. And so when I was approached by a man named Tony Willoughby, who at the time was heading strategy for McKesson's Independent Pharmacy Association for the North America, and he had, he had taken their pharmacies and grown it in vol volume times three over the last four years and taken their Medicare star ratings and quadrupled it during that time. I thought, man, this is really interesting. What are you up to? He said, I just believe in that relationships matter and that the pharmacist that's the part of the community that sees that patient's oftentimes more than their, their family physician, that if we could somehow combine the pharmacist as part of the care team with the physician and wrap that relationship around the patient, that we could do some really great things for their health. I said, man, you're speaking my language. And we brought that gentleman on. He's now our, our chief operating officer. And he, over the last five years, has integrated a what I think is a best-in-class program across the nation. And we literally get several hundred dollars PMPM on our chronic disease patients that generally have about six medications. And we lower that cost two, 300, 400 bucks on average uh, for that population. And what's great is we've integrated the pharmacist into that care team. Every physician has a pharmacist available to them at all times. All of their patients, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Blue Cross, they all have that same one for that physician. And so as they transfer back and forth, they still maintain that pharmacy relationship that's available to them virtually. And what we do is we spend, oftentimes it's an hour, hour and a half, the first contact point when a, a patient comes in and their medications are all out of sync and they can't get their clinical markers right because they're a diabetic and their hemoglobin A1C is nine, their blood pressure's up and the cholesterol's up and they're on seven meds. We spend, they refer that into our care team, the pharmacist, Pharmacy tech, they may spend an hour and a half with them, get all their meds organized, even from the ones from the specialist, make sure they're, they're on the cheapest possible that has the same quality. And oftentimes that's where we can save tons of money by just looking at what they're taking and how often they're taking it. And the physician can't keep up with all the different formularies. And so we act as that trusted resource for the physician that will make sure that we'll help them make those right decisions. And then we work with them every single month. If you have chronic disease, 
multiple chronic disease, especially in elderly, then 90 day refills are bad for your health. Let me say that again. 90 day refills are bad for your health. If you have, a, if you're a chronic disease patient, you need to be checking in with the PBMs of the world and to hit their star ratings, they're, they're just auto refilling different things. What we do is we try to encourage the patient to check in with us or we check in with them on a minimal monthly basis. And that's one of the ways we use the product, which is the medication to engage with the patient. The patient uses our pharmacy and they love the service. They love the fact that they know that they're gonna get the, the best price in most cases, less benefit design carves them out because of a PBM, which happens, which is a really bad answer for a, a lot of the employers that have kind of signed up with that because of rebates. It's a whole nother topic. But once we have them, the physician can know, different than when I was practicing, the physician can know that the patient is actually taking the medications correctly. And because we package by the day, and so the morning will have a package, the evening will have a package. If there's an extra package at lunch, it's there. And so when we interact with the patient, either synchronously or asynchronously, we can ask the patient on day 24 of the month, are you on day 24? Because we always interact with them a week before they should be due for new medications. And what they tell us is, is, oh, I'm on day 17. And so that gives you an, an opportunity to engage and try to course correct. Or if they say that I stopped taking one, then you can work with them right then. Instead of the physician finding out three, six, nine, 12 months later, you find out right then. So our people don't get off. Once they get on with us, they don't get off path. And we move that 60% adherence rate up to over 90% for those chronic diseases. And that doesn't mean 90% that they were filled. We know they're actually taking those medications. So our 92% means they're taking them. And what you see very, very fast is that clinical markers improve, often to the point where you can pull off medications. Because when they're taking 100% of three medications, they often get hypotensive. And so you can back them down to two. Instead of taking three medications 60% of the time, they now can take two medications 100% of the time. That's another cost savings, which they're very thankful for that builds trust. The patient is known and you get this positive feedback loop. And then after their clinical markers improve like that, then they have less things like hospitalizations, less need to go to specialists, less ER visits. And then at the cornerstone of transitions of care, you talked about readmissions being a big piece of, of why people go back to the hospital. It's probably the number one in our ex experience. And so our pharmacist team leads our transitions of care. When you're coming out of the hospital, we want to make sure we double and triple check with the pharmacy on what your medications are. You add up all those things, you integrate it into the care team, you support with a physician who, who ultimately has that original trust that they then spread across that team and you get some behavior changes that are fantastic that lead to value-based care. Well, Christopher, let's talk how you lead in value-based care. We talked earlier about your systems design thinking and innovation and what you've done to create a community asset and help the communities that you serve thrive. But I'm wondering, what is your leadership philosophy and how you were able to, to drive that? And I think back to a conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago, and you referenced the Simon Sinek book, uh, The Infinite Game. And it got me thinking, you know, like you're not really out there thinking about how to win in this one deal. It's really about having an infinite mindset where you're really thinking about these communities thriving. It's important for the, the future of your city and ultimately this greater good. So I, I thought maybe 
as we wrap up today, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, how you lead at Catalyst with an infinite game mindset? Can you tell our listeners how a finite minded healthcare organization that's traditionally battled for market share and procedures in a fee for service world? How can they become more infinite in their own thinking as they look to improve the long-term health outcomes for the population they serve and ultimately compete in this race to value? I can certainly tell you my style, Eric, and the the question of how do you get others to adopt another style, I I find difficult. It's really hard in America where the scoreboard is dollars and it's just not our scoreboard. We do say things like we've saved hundred million and things like that. That's for sure. But we're not out there trying to juice a revenue multiple. Not We're not trying to go public. And I'm not saying those are necessarily bad things, but when those aren't the things you're working on, or you don't have a stakeholder in your business, that's wanting you to pay attention to that. It just frees you up in this idea of in a finite game, the game is to look at the scoreboard and try to win. And winning in America is stock prices and multiples on your EBITDA in corporate America today. We just don't play that game. Our game is very purposeful. How do we help communities thrive? Going back to my roots in Hillsboro, how do I leave this earth better than I found it? How does our organization and the people that we work with in our network, they have that same alignment of, I want to leave it better and I found it. That's being purpose-driven. That's having an infinite timeline. That's very hard in corporate America today because of a diff- different set of scoreboards. And I will, I will say below that is this idea that, that, that relationships matters, that the world actually goes round on the power of relationships. And if you can think in a, a win, 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 win mindset, which is what we try to do, help all of our stakeholders win, it's a stakeholder model around conscious capitalism, if you've kind of studied that any. How do I make sure that all of our decisions go through a filter of, I want it to be good for our employees. I want it to be good for our physicians. I want it to be good for our patients. I want it to be good for our payer partners, whether that's the government, the employer, or the insurance company that we work with. If you're creating win-lose scenarios, then ultimately you're going to probably be playing a finite game. Infinite games are where you understand the power of relationships and you collaborate to create win, 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 wins. And that may mean, and it does mean, is that we turn away daily people who want to either invest or buy and and throw a lot of money at you. And they often don't understand this mindset. And so that's kind of goes back to my point about, I don't know how to tell people to change a mindset. It's really built off of an internal governor of kind of what we care about. It doesn't mean you couldn't necessarily have an investor partner that that aligns with that. I know there's a lot out there that do. And so I think that it's not obsolete from that. It's just for right now, this is the path we take. Dr. Christopher Crow, president of Catalyst Health Network. Thank you for joining the Race to Value and sharing your story with our listeners. It's been a pleasure. I love y'all's podcast. Keep it up.